Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. Liz Church, Andrea Smith, Caitlin Blanche, Chantel Oliver, Jamie Lang, and Mandy, Rob, and Virginia Booty. Katie. Hi, Olivia. Have you ever had a mama bear moment? Oh. <laughs> you know, the classic like, threat to your child rage, irrational, you know, yeah. the, the stereotypical do not hurt my baby. Don't touch my baby yeah. moment. Yes. And it's a confusing one because it involves older sibling hurting younger sibling. Oh, yes. So you're like raging against your own baby bear. Right. To protect your other baby bear. So what does it mean that we call it that? That reaction is mama bear. Uh. Why do we frame it that way? Why do we have this narrative? Uh. Why don't we have father bear? Oh. Why isn't there daddy bear moment? Yeah. Because father bears don't stick around. (laughs) <laughs> Good point. Yes. <laughs> Protecting the cubs from the father from bear. From the father bear, yeah. Wants to eat them. Yeah. But, like, there isn't a phrase that we have for that impulse in a father. Mm. Uh, yeah. We've, we've definitely marked this as a biological response of only mothers. Yeah. Maybe because we think mothers should usually be nurturing and sweet and kind. Mm. And then there's and so a it's an moment unusual. when... Yeah. Flip the switch, and they go yeah. bonkers, and and that's the justification for this otherwise unfeminine behavior. Yeah, maybe. Right. Huh. Interesting. I think now. I mean, we talk about mama bear moments, but the other ways that we talk about very supportive, protective mothers are not great ah. in our society. We have helicopter mothers, yeah. tiger moms. We have tiger moms. Yeah. We have. Now snowplow moms who just Uh. snowplow over every opposition to give their child a completely trial-free life. Yeah. These are not laudatory phrases. Mm -hmm. And we don't don't approve of this way of mothering. Yeah. Anymore. Um, Anymore. (laughs) So is this a modern way of looking at mothers? Hmm. I mean, we, we often talk about this, that the narrative goes, moms these days just won't let their kids grow up. Yeah. They won't cut the apron strings. Not like the old days when moms let their sons be men. Yeah. But is that really true? I think in the short term narrative, we, we're often talking about the good old days of the 1950s. Right. 
that the people saying these things are looking back to their own childhood. Mm -hmm. But historically speaking, what have mothers been? Mm. What are mothers for? Ha. And obviously, as soon as we think about it for 10 seconds, there's not a narrative exactly. of what mothers do and are for. Yeah. It varies wildly <laughs> from time to time and place to place. And I would argue that the woman that we're going to talk about today was an outstandingly supportive mother. Ah. Perhaps the poster mother for supportive mother. This is probably the main thing she's known for is being a mother. She is the mom of one of the most famous people ever. But she's not necessarily known as a good mom. Oh, <laughs> she's just a mom. She is the mom huh. and maybe a negative mother. And I'm really interested in why that is. What are the standards around momming? Mm. And maybe this is just me projecting now that I am sending my sons out into the world as adults. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm feeling this really hard. Ah. But how do we frame how we talk about mothers? Yeah. And particularly in the ancient world. Mm. So, given these hints, mother of one of the most famous figures of the ancient world. Oh. Do you have any guesses about who we're going to talk about? Whoa. Well... Can you narrow it down for me? And with uh, ancient world, do you mean like classical world? Classical world, yes. Okay. Indeed. Ancient Greece, perhaps? Oh, ancient Greece. Famous mother, ancient Greece. Well, so she's mother of the most famous... One of the most famous people ever. Let's go with Alexander the Great's mother. Correct. Yes. Um, and that's how oh, she's known. Yeah. What's her name? Alexander the Great's mother. mother. Yeah. Olymp uh, Olympia. Olympias. Olympias. Uh-huh. Yes. Olympias. This story is odd because in many ways, much like Gunhild, your last episode, mm -hmm. another woman famous for being a mother, we tend to cheer for her now based on the very same things that historic male writers were writing mm. in order to make her the bad guy. Yeah. The very same characteristics that they're demonizing are what makes us like her now. But trying to peel back 23 centuries mm -hmm. of propaganda and character assassination is tricky. Right. It's hard not to swing too far. Yeah. Either way. And really, the goal, if you're doing history, the goal isn't, as Jeffrey Ritchie said in our Mauling Scene episode, another villain, hmm. <laughs> the goal isn't to judge. The goal is to understand. Exactly. So that's what we're going to try and do today. Cool. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Your Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. Now, for this episode, I decided to do something a little different. Oh. In the grand tradition of the crossover episode. Oh. Today, we're talking to the host of one of my favorite women's history podcasts. <gasps> we're talking to Kate Armstrong. Oh. Who I hope our listeners already know. Yay, the Exploress. The Exploress. 
Hi, I'm Kate Armstrong. I'm a writer and a nonfiction book editor, and I produce a podcast called The Explores, which time travels back through history to find out what life was like for women of the past. She's the greatest. I know you and I are both big fans. Now, because Olympias is famous for being a mom, <laughs> that unfortunately means we don't really know that much about her childhood. Yeah. Or her life pre-mom. Mm-hmm. Her life is sort of presumed to begin at the moment when she marries King Philip II of Macedonia. Yeah, as with most ancient Greek women. Exactly. Especially when you're talking about the ancient world and women in the ancient world, we just know so little. We only know about these women because they're a footnote in some great man's story. And so we don't have a lot to go on. And often what we have to go on is, you know, these ancient writers had a clear agenda. Sometimes that agenda was, look how virtuous and what a good mother this woman was. And look how good her son turned out. And she never complained. And she never did anything she wasn't supposed to. And everyone should want to be like her. Or it's the cautionary tale where the woman is stepping out of line and doing things she's not supposed to do. See what happens when a woman gets ambitious. See what happens when a woman starts scheming. Everything falls apart. People are dying left and right. And Olympias most definitely falls into that category. Luckily, because she is a princess Mm -hmm. already, we do know a bit more about her than usual. Like we know her name. Except maybe we don't. (laughs) She's born around the year 375 BCE. Her dad is king of Malosia in northern Greece. And their family is very proud of their pedigree. Her family are called the Eosids, and they claim that they're descended from Neoptolemus, the son of the warrior Achilles, and Andromache, who was once the wife of another famous Trojan warrior, Hector, who is abducted and essentially forced to be Neoptolemus's wife. That's a pretty good origin story for the time. Maybe not quite so great now <laughs> in our modern eyes. <laughs> Those were the heroes. Now, as we've said, if listeners know anything about Olympias, they know that she is Alexander the Great's mom. Uh-huh. If you know anything else about her, it's that she liked to play with snakes. Ah. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> and that, in fact, she liked to sleep with snakes, the story goes. Awesome. <laughs> and that she may have had an affair with Zeus, the god of lightning. Oh, yes. (laughs) Of course. And that's the story of Olympias. For those who have heard of her at all, that's what we know. Cool. Amazingly, there is more to her life than that. Wow. (laughs) Olympias was the mother of a great man, and she's painted with this broad brush as calculating, cutthroat, cold, vicious. And she was some of those things, but she was also a fiercely loyal and dedicated mother. She kept her son alive in one of the most cutthroat courts of the ancient world, which is a feat in itself. She was very passionate 
and she was very ambitious, but she was also deeply loyal, deeply loving, and willing to do anything for her children and anything for her family. She was a brilliant politician and tactician. She was incredibly skilled at diplomacy, at court politics and international politics, at negotiation, at building allies. Mm. She's a fantastic war strategist. Whoa. She's phenomenal at PR, both her own and her son's. She really understood the power of symbol and story. She's everything you want in a leader. She's the seven habits of highly effective people all in one. <laughs> exactly. And all of the things that were deeply prized in ancient Greece, she checks every box of what a leader should be. Except she's a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, we call Alexander Alexander the Great because he was this mighty conqueror, because he went out and he took what he wanted, no matter the cost. Olympias did exactly the same thing, and in fact, he, he became the man that he became because of her. But when we talk about her, there are things to demonize. He is Alexander the Great! Yeah. All the leadership skills, the complete package. He is the perfect man. Mm-hmm. But it's her actions that make that possible. And his actions that we praise are just mirrors of her actions. Hmm. She's not fearless. She's devious. Ah. She's not a brilliant strategist. She's an untrustworthy schemer. Ah. She's not an outside-of-the-box thinker. She's deviant. Ah. And so her story gets told a very different way. For example... The thing that Wikipedia believes is the most important fact for you to know about Olympias. The second sentence in her Wikipedia entry is that she was a devout member of the orgiastic snake-worshipping <laughs> cult of Dionysus. That wow. is All right. the thing that they really want you to know. Crucial information. Devout member. Snake cult. Not just a member, devout member. I see. Of the orgiastic snake-worshipping cult. And that explains everything. So we can just cast her aside. Right. She's the deviant sex maniac. Yeah, probably. ignore everything right. else about her. Mm-hmm. This obviously says a lot more about us now and about the men like Plutarch who are writing about her 400 years after she dies Yeah. than it does about her. Mm-hmm. But that narrative is the one that we're living in. Wikipedia is where most people are going to encounter history. And it matters how she's framed there. And I'm actually going to try to remedy that and work on her entry. Yay. And I encourage our listeners to learn to edit Wikipedia and help get more mm-hmm. women's stories on Wikipedia to begin with and told better. Awesome. Here's what we do know. Her name when she's born is probably Polyxenia. Polyxenia. Her hometown is not what we think of when we think of women in classical Greece. To your average Athenian, the wild mountainous region of Epirus is almost this barbarian backwater. They barely consider it Greece at all. If you're a Game of Thrones person, this is kind of like comparing King's Landing to Winterfell, except perhaps even more extreme. It's rugged, it's isolated, it's this 
semi-wild west of Greece. And so that's the Greece Olympias grows up in. It's comprised of clans that are kind of like Scotland's Highland clans. They're proud, they're territorial, and there's this really, really strong warrior culture. And because they're essentially a border state between southern Greece and places farther north, like Thrace and Illyria, these places that have these really, really strong warrior cultures where both men and women participate in war, Olympias' father is a guy named Neoptolemus, and he is Molossia's king. And Kate Armstrong has actually created an amazing woman-centric map. Yes, of ancient Greece. It's so great. That helps you locate these people. So check our website Mm -hmm. for links to that. Check out all of our amazing maps and timelines. They're fantastic. We also know that Molossian women enjoyed a lot more freedom than their southern counterparts. So in Athens, women can't vote. They can't go to symposia. They can't go out on their own. They need a male guardian to conduct any business they do. They don't have a lot of rights in the public sphere. Whereas in Molossia, women can own property. They can act as guardians for minors. And they, once they become adults, they don't have guardians themselves. So while Greek women in the South have pretty much no voice in government, the monarchical system in Epirus makes room for royal women to step in and actually play a more active role in governing. But the thing with Epirus is that these tribal monarchies are far from being stable. Kings don't exercise absolute power. If they do a bad job, the tribe is more than ready to tear them down and put someone up in his place. And so just because you're a princess, it doesn't mean that you're going to stay one. And there is no rule of the kingship passes automatically. So staying in charge means knowing how to make alliances, but you also have to be really good at war and strategy. So that's the world that Polyxena grows up in. She's getting this daily education in power, how to win it, how to hold on to it, and what it feels like to lose it. Early in her life, her father is forced to share the throne with his brother, And then her father passes away, leaving her uncle in control. He marries one of Polyxena's sisters named Troas, a little bit of uncle-niece loving. Classic. (laughs) And, you know, he probably does this because he thinks it's going to help cement his his lineage in the royal family. We don't know how Polyxena feels about any of this. We have no super secret diary. We have no idea. (laughs) But I can only imagine that this is an unstable time for her. She's a teenager. Her place in her uncle's household and in the royal family is a bit tenuous. And because it's ancient Greece, she can't just pick up and leave to forge her own Mm. path and her own career. She knows that her best chance to make a name for herself, which she clearly wants to do, is to marry well. So, because home is messy, (laughs) Polyxenia decides, you know what, I think I'm gonna go join a cult. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's probably a common reason why people join cults. Yeah, even today. Yep. <laughs> so in 357, she sails to the island of Samothrace, which is between Macedonia and Troy. It's a religious center where pilgrims go to seek protection and where people participate in mysterious and sacred rites. And while both men and women participate in these cults, Religion in ancient Greece gives women 
an important role that they don't find anywhere else. So women can be priestesses, women become involved in specific festivals. There's some festivals in ancient Greece that are all women, men aren't allowed. It gives women an avenue to claim some power and some importance that they wouldn't have otherwise. One of these popular cults in Macedonia is the cult of Dionysus, who's the god of wine, revelry, and drama, which suits Olympias just fine. We don't know a lot about what goes on in the cults and what kinds of rituals they had because they were very secret. We know that Olympias gets involved with the cult of Dionysus quite heavily and that she introduces some new and exotic magical practices. I really like the way Plutarch explains it in his characteristic fashion. He says, Olympias, who, more than the other women, strove after these inspirations and carried out these frenzies more barbarically, introduced to the celebrating groups great tame serpents who, often raising their heads from the ivy wreaths and sacred baskets, or twining around the wands and garlands of the women, astonished and terrified the men. <laughs> and it seems to be there that she gets a new name. Oh. Myrtale? which is Myrtle. Oh, sacred plant. It is also on Samothrace that she meets King Philip II. Ooh. This guy is a really interesting character. He's born royal, but he's the third in line. So really he wasn't ever meant to be king of Macedonia. But then his oldest brother was assassinated by his mother's boyfriend and his other, his other brother died in battle. So those two facts tell you pretty much all you need to know about the royal court at Macedonia <laughs> and what it's like. Entering the cosmopolitan court in Molossia is kind of like being thrown into a pit of vipers. This is not a place that's gonna be less messy no. than where she came from, but she has the skills to take it on. Okay. It's also a very warrior-centric culture, so in order to be a good king, you also need to be good at war. Philip proves this really early on by putting down all of these pretenders to the throne. This guy is smart. This guy is ruthless. This guy is a conqueror by nature. But she is 100% his match, and it, it, he appears to have noticed that. <laughs> this is a story, according to Plutarch, of love at first sight. And while that's a lovely thought that they saw each other in the hallway and kind of went, hey, it's a lot more likely that the meeting was planned and that it was struck very much on purpose. Philip wants Molossia's help in fighting the invading Illyrians who are always causing trouble. And we can imagine that her uncle wants the prestige that marrying the Macedonian royalty will bring to the family. But everyone who writes about these two talks about this as a very fiery, passionate relationship. <laughs> She's not getting pushed around mm. by Philip. What did she look like? Do we know? She looked just like Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I thought so. Yeah. We do, We have a <laughs> image of her from a coin from the time. So, oh, you know, as much as a coin tells you what someone looks like, which is not much. But it's it's beautiful. We have a picture of it on our website. So Myrtale is married somewhere in her teens, we're not sure exactly where, and she travels to Macedonia. But if she's hoping for a warm welcome in her new city and a relaxed honeymoon phase, she is going to be disappointed. She marries Philip II as his fourth wife. Oh. 
Macedonia, unlike Greece, is polygamous. <laughs> and especially kings just kind of collect wives. As they do, yeah. But this isn't a harem like China or Turkey or other places that we might think of where they, women are cloistered together in one area yeah. and they're, they're ranked. It's and, very yeah. obvious who is in charge. There isn't a chief royal wife. There's just everyone fighting for their piece of the pie. Ugh. So ancient sources describe her always as vindictive and jealous of Philip's many other wives and his lovers, because of course he also had lovers. Some of them were female, some of them were male. The Macedonians were not overly fussed about that, but he, he, he had a lot going on, her husband. I don't think that she's vindictive and jealous. I read her as a woman with ambitions who's not interested in pretending to be anything other than what she is. She's someone you either love or hate, it seems. The people who follow her, follow her without hesitation. They'll follow her anywhere. But she also has a lot of haters and not only has to try to win and keep her husband's attention if she wants to get ahead, but she has to negotiate alliances, she has to scare any enemies into submission, and the number one thing she needs to do is that she needs to have a son. She and Philip are overjoyed to have a son together, but I can imagine that as Olympias looks down at her son in her arms, she understands his fate is forever going to determine her own. She lives in a world where royal mothers are only as good, only as powerful as their sons and what their sons are able to achieve. They have no choice but to hitch their wagon to the man in their life. Alexander's half-brother, his slightly older brother, is a guy named Philip Aridaeus. He's born to another one of the wives. Plutarch tells us that at some point, this son seems to lose some of his mental faculties. He, he struggles through some kind of illness and he's never the same afterwards. And when it comes down to who did this, who made him sick, Plutarch doesn't mince words. He says, his mind became ruined when he was poisoned by Olympias. That seems unlikely to me. If you're gonna poison him, why not just kill him? Yeah. But of course, these stories are nothing new in harem politics. Yeah. Accusing another wife of harming the king's son is a pretty good way to put people on the outs. Mm -hmm. This son being ill-equipped to take the throne is awfully convenient, as at this moment, Alexander is the only other son. The story goes that Alexander's father is not actually King Philip II. Uh-huh. Alexander's father is actually Zeus. Yes. <laughs> he is, in fact, a demigod. Of course. Which not only means he is unstoppable and people shouldn't try to oppose him because you don't want to make Zeus angry, but that she was chosen by the gods. Yeah. This She's the best. adds to her prestige mm -hmm. as well as his. And we don't know if she's the one who starts circulating this story or if Alexander is the one who starts circulating this story. But to me, it has all of the hallmarks of an Olympias production. <laughs> and of course, nobody can disprove this story. Yeah. How are you going to prove that it wasn't Zeus? Mm. Another brush with the gods in her bedroom comes later. <laughs> Olympias has had two children, a son and a daughter, and the king comes to her bed and finds snakes in her bed. 
Ooh. Philip, of course, is freaked out by this. <laughs> but not, as one might think, because there are snakes in his wife's bed. That's totally normal, apparently. The problem is, maybe these snakes are a god. Oh. <laughs> maybe this is a god in bed with his wife, and mm -hmm. he doesn't want to disturb them. Sure, that's, that's some clear thinking. So he leaves her alone, and he decides, that's it. No more visiting Olympias's bedchamber for me. Okay. <laughs> now, she's no longer burdened with more pregnancies, more babies. <laughs> she can put all of her effort into raising the two children that she has. Unless Zeus comes knocking again. Unless Zeus comes knocking again, but apparently he did not. Okay. If this is also a Olympias production, <laughs> this is very clever. Yeah, she has established her boundaries without ever having to actually push back herself. Yeah, cool. Against the king. Either way, weird, and one of the things that she becomes known for. <laughs> Snakes in her bed. Cool. And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Hey, Katie, it's almost March, and you know what that means. Women's History Month. Yes. So I really want to encourage our listeners to check out our fantastic sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Because with Girls Can Crate, it can be Women's History Month every month. And just like us, Girls Can Crate subscription boxes help kids discover amazing, real-life women's history heroes. With crates, mini-mailers, and digital subscriptions packed with gorgeous books, games, experiments, projects, and more, Girls Can Crate brings real-life heroes right to your front door. And if you go to girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and use the code HERNAME, you'll get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. Check them out now, and when you order, make sure you use the code HERNAME, all one word, so they know we sent you. Time for a new name. Again. Yeah. So at some point in all this, she picks up the name that she's now famous by, which is Olympias. One version of how she gets it is that she takes it on in celebration of her husband's victory at the Olympics when his chariot team wins a big race. But I don't like that version of the story. <laughs> it's also just as likely she gets it as part of a Macedonian festival in honor of Zeus. And if she did, in fact, have an affair with Zeus I to produce say, her son. I her boyfriend, so... Exactly. I like the image of Olympias claiming that name as her own having it be something she takes on herself to show her own power. Reminding people who she is. Yeah. And who she knows. <laughs> Alexander lives with his mom at least until he's six years old. She is very involved in raising him, in teaching him. He is raised on the stories of these heroes that are in his bloodline the important, powerful people from whom he comes, mm -hmm. and this destiny that he is born to. So while we don't know a lot about what she actually does during this period, the fact that Alexander grows to manhood, the fact that nothing bad happens to him, the fact that he never gets shoved aside for other children, says a lot about her fierceness, about her savvy, about her ability to keep her son safe, which I think is really impressive. I don't think she gets enough credit for that. And it works. This training of this future hero works. And he becomes 
his father's darling. Alexander's father is gone a lot. He's really busy expanding Macedonia's borders, warring with other nations, essentially making Macedonia the biggest power that the Mediterranean had ever seen, really. So by 16, Alexander is doing well. He's doing great. He's commanding armies. He's fighting off Illyrians while his father is away. He's making Olympias very proud. And it seems like his ascension is assured. And then, in 337 BCE, mm-hmm. Philip decides he's going to get married again. And this time, he picks a Macedonian woman. And this is a major threat. Any children that this Macedonian woman gives birth to are going to be hometown boys. Alexander might be a hero, but he's only half Macedonian. Ah. And Olympias is very concerned. And she's proven right pretty quickly when in one of the worst father of the bride drama moments at a wedding ever. (laughs) Everyone's drinking. Everyone's having a nice time the father of the bride makes some very loud and off-color comments. He called on the Macedonians to pray to the gods for a legitimate heir to the throne. So Alexander apparently jumps up and throws a drink in Attalus's face, so outraged is he by this slight. This is a soap opera wedding. Yeah. (laughs) Scandal, right? And in that moment, instead of defending his son, the king, Philip, rises drunkenly from his seat and points his sword at Alexander in front of everyone. This feels very Game of Thronesy as well. Oh, yeah. Except instead of killing everybody, <laughs> Olympias and Alex decide, you know what? Fine. If we're not wanted here, we'll leave. And she and Alexander self-exile back to her hometown. Really? This is a very bold and unexpected move. Yeah. She isn't one to let anyone threaten her power or her son's power and to publicly call it into question. This is what I mean about she is outside of the box. She is thinking lots of steps ahead on the chessboard. I think she really understands the power of a power move. Mm. That she is raising herself and her son above this uncouth behavior. Huh. And she is going back to where she's appreciated. Eventually, Philip sees the error of his ways, realizes he's chased his very capable grown son away, and he invites them both back to court. The gamble has paid off, and she is back on top. Woohoo! Then everything blows up again when Philip is very publicly stabbed by a guy named Pausanias, who is one of his jilted lovers. Everything erupts into chaos, and suddenly Macedonia is without a king. Almost immediately, the whispers start circling that it may have been Pausanias who wielded the knife, but of course it was Olympias who pushed him to do it. Again, we have no idea whether she was involved or not. I suspect not. Her son was back in Philip's good graces. He was the clear next in line for the throne. I don't know that she had a lot of reason to kill Philip, other than Philip was kind of the worst. (laughs) Regardless, her son is now in charge, and as his mother, Olympias is in a position to wield a lot of power. 
But first, she and her son have to cement their position in this court of, as Plutarch puts it, great jealousies, terrible hatred, and danger everywhere. So they start taking out anyone they see as a potential threat. And this is when Olympias does one of the most brutal, controversial things, I suppose, that she ever does. She has Philip's latest wife, that Macedonian Cleopatra, and her infant baby killed. There are a couple of versions of how she does it. Maybe she burns them both to death. Oh. Maybe she kills the baby in front of Cleopatra and then forces her to kill herself. No. (laughs) Possibly she sends her a variety of suicide options. Another says Olympia sends Cleopatra three things, a rope, a dagger, and a vial full of poison, and lets her choose the way she wants to go out. Oh my gosh. Somehow, she disposes of these two. Maybe they died of natural causes, and it's all a Plutarch smear campaign. It could be. (laughs) It totally could be. But also, (laughs) this is par for the course for this court. Everyone is doing this kind of thing. And definitely Alexander has done infinitely worse things than this. But the way that this entire interaction is framed by Plutarch, by all of the male writers later, they want us to believe that this killing is revenge because this woman dared to marry King Philip. Mm Mm-hmm. Nonsense. This is a strategic power move to protect her son and his kingdom. Yeah. I mean, it is, of course, it's bloody, it's cutthroat. It's the ancient world. Right. But it's not personal, it's business. But of course, when a woman does it, it has to be personal. It has right. to be emotionally driven. Mm. It's feminine rage. Yeah. Jealousy. She was slighted. And of course, women could never strategize. They just react. Yeah. <laughs> this is a woman who possibly arranged an entire maybe these snakes are God scenario <laughs> to shoo her husband away but we're expected to believe that she murdered a baby Mm. because she was mad at this woman. Mm -hmm. Like, it just, it doesn't pan out to me. This isn't the way that this strategic warrior woman works. This is protecting her son. Mm -hmm. This is consolidating power. Yeah. Doesn't make it great. No. I'm not a fan (laughs) of these actions. So she does that. They nullify all the threats. And then by 334, Alexander's place as king of Macedonia is pretty well assured. And that's the year that he prepares to ride off on his big, decade-long adventure, turning himself into the guy that we now call Alexander the Great. She watches him ride away, not knowing it's the last time they're ever going to see each other. I think about this moment, and again, this isn't a moment that really gets talked about or written about, but you just imagine that moment. Her standing there, watching her son, she's poured everything into. So much love, fierce protection, everything she knows, everything she's learned has been put into this boy who is now a man, and she's never going to see him again. So Alexander rides off, does many things. 
back home, she's not the regent. She's not running things, but she's pretty close. She's taking the plunder he's sending back and and making offerings for him at places like Delphi and Athens. She's writing diplomatic letters to members of state and to other regions. She's making sure that no throne pretenders are going to take advantage of Alexander's absence. She's giving gifts to foreign leaders. So she's not acting as regent, but she is maintaining the status quo, and she's really leaving the chair open for when her son comes back. Then, I think at age 32, Alexander the Great dies. He dies in the field, he dies mysteriously, he dies suddenly. Everything that he's built, the biggest empire the world has ever seen, is thrown into absolute chaos. And what Kate Armstrong calls Alexander's royal bros, (laughs) his hangers-on, his group of close friends and generals and warriors, are instantly fighting over his empire. And Olympias realizes if she wants to hold power, she has to put all of her energy into protecting her grandson, Alexander's infant son, and maintaining his place as Alexander's successor and ruler of this empire, rather than letting everything fall apart. It does help the culture that he came from um, helps explain his famous last words that he leaves his kingdom to the strongest, and then he mm. dies. So that's always been cited as these famously disastrous last words, like, why didn't <laughs> he just say who his heir is? But he so famously loved and celebrated his Macedonian culture. He was just yeah. being Macedonian about it. Everybody grabbed for it. Yeah, his mother and his human father mm. <laughs> both are really strongly enmeshed in this idea that strongest person rules. Yeah. yeah. And that that's what's best for the world. Mm-hmm. Olympias believes that what's best for the world is that her grandson <laughs> is in charge. <laughs> and so she fights with every ounce of her energy and her skill to make that happen. Basically, the next several years are going to be taken up by what's called the Wars of the Successors. So this is when all the royal bros are all kind of battling it out for who's going to be the next Alexander, who's going to take his place. So Olympias goes to work immediately, goes on for years. And then one of Alexander's commanders basically says, Olympias, I want you to come back over to Macedonia to take care of your grandson. Now, she's no dummy. This could be a trap. Mm-hmm. She's not going to walk right into this. But eventually she goes. But a force has been brewing to go against her. So again, we have the two camps. We have Philip Aridaeus and all the people who are backing him to take the throne. And then we have Team Alexander's son. Philip Aridaeus has gotten married to a woman called Eurydice. She is the daughter of a woman named Sinane, who's an incredible woman all on her own. Sinane and her daughter basically decide... We're going to get you married to Philip Aridaeus, and we're finally going to take the throne. But Olympias and her supporters are having none of it. The two armies meet in the fall of 317 at the Macedonian-Molossian border. So we have Eurydice's army and Olympias's army coming together for the final showdown (laughs) of this empire. Though neither of these women command the forces per se, they are most certainly riding at the head of them. 
Eurydice dresses in full Macedonian battle gear. But Olympias chooses to deck herself out as a worshiper of Dionysus. Her absolutely brilliant understanding of who she is and what she means to these people. And she shows up dressed as a goddess, essentially. Mm. She is this 50-something yeah. grandmother of this infant king. And she is every inch the Greek goddess that they expect her mm. to be in full regalia on a white horse at the front of the battle. <laughs> and I love imagining her astride her horse, hair whipping in the wind, staring down this enemy army, ready to go all in for this last bid for power. Wow. Reminding these people who she is and what she stands for, that Eurydice's entire army quits. What? And joins her side. So without even really having to fight, Olympias has won the day. What? Do you think that really happened? Even Plutarch who hates her guts says it happened. Wow. That's the way to win a battle. Through effective <laughs> costuming. I mean, you and I <laughs> yeah. could 100% get into that kind of warfare. If it comes down to commitment to yeah, accurate costuming, I am there. <laughs> yeah. So at this moment, she has more power than any woman in the entirety of the Greek world. In charge of the kingdom and in charge of Alexander's wow. son. And wow. if she had just stuck with that, uh oh, things might have been okay. Ah. She has Philip Aridaeus stabbed because we have to get rid of that guy. And she lets Eurydice choose her own death, which ends up being by hanging. Which is the death of choice for royal women of this time, apparently. If she had stopped there, perhaps things could have gone differently. But she doesn't stop there. She decides to kill this guy Cassander, who's another one of the royal bros who she has a grudge with. She decides to kill his brother, and she defiles the tomb of another one of his brothers in revenge for Alexander's death. So then she kills 100 of Cassandra's friends. This is not a great move. It does not make her a lot of friends in the Macedonian court. Is this behavior any worse than any of the men around her? Not really. But because she's a woman in charge, it's just something that Macedonia cannot allow. And she loses the thing she has fought so hard to gain, that goodwill and respect of the people. Mm. And it's the end of Olympias. Cassander, who's very angry, rightly so, very angry about what she's done, comes riding into town. And Olympias just doesn't have the supporters at this point to be able to fight him. So she has to essentially surrender. And sadly, he puts her to death in 316. And we aren't quite clear how she dies. There are several stories. The one I like best comes from Justin, who gives her a little bit more noble drama. He says she goes out to meet the forces armed against her in full royal regalia. When the crowd sees her, they're reminded of what a goddess she is and that she's Alexander the Great's mother. They are so struck with what she stands for that they can't kill her. <laughs> 
none of these people who have been sent to end her reign will do it. Really? And eventually, Cassander has to handpick relatives of the people she killed Mm. to come and kill her because no one else will do it. And she dies with her chin up like a warrior. Mm. And as Justin has it, you could see Alexander even in his dying mother. As horrendous as many of the things that she did are, I I do have a grudging respect for her. She fought literally to the death for her family and nothing was going to prevent them from having every opportunity that she could fight and claw out of her society for them. And though I, I, I definitely don't admire that in Mothers Now. Yeah. I can't judge her. Yeah. I mean, it is true. Those were the times. Is yeah. this how you mother? Yeah. In third century BCE Greece? We don't know. Yeah. And I mean, no one can say that she did not love her children. (laughs) She was a dedicated mother. We know that to the last, he loved his mother. According to one ancient writer, he said he wanted to consecrate her to immortality, to make his mother a god, just like he'd become. Huge thanks to Kate Armstrong at The Explorers. Make sure you check out her podcast. It's phenomenal. You can find her wherever you listen to podcasts or at theexploresspodcast.com. If you want to learn more about Olympias, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. You find links to all kinds of resources and information and also to Kate's own two-part episode, diving even deeper into the life of Olympias and the world she lived in. We highly recommend it. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Michael Levy and Tyler Cunningham. Our fantastic Patreon sponsors for this episode are Liz Church, Andrea Smith, Caitlin Blanche, Chantel Oliver, Jamie Lang, and Mandy, Rob, and Virginia Booty. We're so grateful for our patrons. We couldn't make the podcast without them. If you'd like to support our work, check us out on Patreon, And there's a link from our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Our intern is Isabella Luna Martinez. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. And this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.